This morning's reading is taken from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intensely and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. It's wonderful to be with you uh, today and uh, for the next uh, five weeks or so as we make our way through this letter of 1 Peter. Uh, The passage was obviously open uh, uh, for you to read in the leaflet there and there's an outline that gives you some idea of where we're going, so that'll be useful for you. Um, Can I also say uh, for the mothers here today, I want to wish you all a very happy Mother's Day. I have a... um, a friend who says that he thinks churches are very discriminatory in the way in which they celebrate Mother's and Father's Days. He said whenever it comes around to Father's Day, normally the churches explain to men why they need to lift their game and improve their form and just do better and sort of beat them up a bit, you know. And then when we get to Mother's, we just praise and extol their wonderful virtues, you know. So uh, let me say this is the day for praising and extolling your wonderful virtues and uh, saying what a wonderful, terrific job you do and... In a few months' time, we'll be able to beat up on the fathers. It'll be fine. (laughs) Not sure if that's true. What do the men think here? Do you think that's right? You've got to be careful, haven't you, actually? Um, One Peter. We're we're going to have a Q&A time straight after this. So uh, if you do have any questions that arise, you know, about the way in which churches celebrate Mother's and Father's Day or uh, probably more helpfully the passage we're looking at this morning then uh, just to let you know at the end, we will have a chance to uh, dig into that and to uh, think about those issues. But as, as we begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are 
a God of extraordinary grace and kindness. And Father, we pray that as we reflect on your word this morning, you give us that strong sense of your uh, kindness towards us in your son, uh, the great mercy you've shown us, and that that will actually drive our thinking, our behaviour, and the way in which we view uh, life in this world. Uh, Father, we commend this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine that I um, meet you for the first time and I ask you to tell me about yourself. Uh, just give me your, your background, who you are. What would you say? Uh, I imagine if you, you asked me, I'd probably say things like this, you know, married to uh, the beautiful Sue, who is a wonderful mother uh, for over 40 years, uh, that we have three children, Ben, Kate and David. They're married to Elaine, Richard and Maddie. I have eight absolutely exceptional grandchildren, right, because our grandparents are always allowed to boast about their grandchildren, right? That's the unwritten rule. Uh, I'm a pastor of a church. Uh, when I was younger, you know, in my 20s, I used to have flaming red hair, right? At university, it was down to my shoulders, and I had a beard to match. Can you imagine that? That's a while ago now, but it's true. I could show you a picture. I barrack for an AFL team that is languishing towards the bottom of the ladder at this point in time, so it's a bit sad. What would you say about yourself? Uh, what sort of things would you identify and explain to me about who you are? Say I um, tweak the question and I ask you to tell me about the, the issue or the event that's had the most impact on your life. Uh, now, that's a, that's a much more profound question, isn't it? It's a deeper question. It's a more searching question. And your answer might be quite, quite different. When my uh, mother was almost 80 years of age, I took her for a holiday to Sydney, a place where she'd lived uh, for a number of decades. And we um, explored all the old haunts that she hadn't seen for quite a while. But as we were going down Broadway, which is one of the major sort of arterial roads leading into the city, uh, just me and my mum in the car, and she burst into tears. Uh, just started, started crying, and I asked her what was wrong. Then she told me a secret, something she'd never shared with her children, something she had never shared with her friends, something that she'd kept hidden for eight decades. Here's what it was. She was adopted. Uh, we'd never known that fact. But, you know, for me, it was one of those aha moments. You know, I, I understood probably for the first time how that event had profoundly affected her confidence, her security and her sense of identity. And I could think back and see how it had manifested itself in her life in all sorts of different ways. Now, let me say, she knew the love of her, her adopted mother, but she just lived with those questions about why her natural mother and father had put her out for adoption. It's not an un uncommon story, uh, I've realised. When we turn to this letter of 1 Peter, it was written to believers to profoundly shape 
their understanding of identity, uh, their understanding of who they were. Uh, it's a letter that's written to believers that are located on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire in around 64 AD. Uh, you, you pick up the places it's written to, if you look at verse 1 in the passage, to believers in the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Now, when it says Asia at this point, it's, it's not Asia as we know it, but on the northern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Right, we're talking about a particular part of the Roman Empire. And it's addressed to followers of Jesus in societies that had really no interest in Jesus and actually viewed um, believers with great suspicion. It was a culture where uh, disciples were not just treated with indifference, but they were seen to be subversive to the Roman Empire. That was the way that they were viewed. And can I say, I think this letter is just as relevant to 21st century believers here in Mount Barker as it was to people in 1st century Roman Empire. It speaks to a group who know what it's like to be in the minority, to be treated with indifference, to be treated as people with quaint or old-fashioned sort of ideas, uh, even to be treated as people who have repugnant views that are out of step with our culture and society today. It has really powerful application to us and it shapes, shapes our self-understanding. It helps us to negotiate what it's like to be sidelined or seen to be sort of second class in our attitudes for no other reason except that we're Christians. The big idea of the letter comes later uh, in the letter, in chapter 5, verse 12, this is what, what Peter says. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. You see, in this letter, what Peter does is he reminds us of the wonderful grace of God his kindness. And that grace, that kindness, is meant to shape our identity, our purpose and our behaviour. So let's dig in. Let's explore these opening words of the letter about God's grace. In verse 1, it's interesting. Peter describes the people he's writing to as um, exiles scattered. Um, the idea is of... Uh, Exiles of the dispersion, it's literally what it says. And the concept is one of living as an expat in another country. I don't know how many of you have done that over the years. Lived uh, uh, in one country, then moved to another country. There are quite a few, actually, in this congregation. I think it can be enormously stressful adapting to a foreign culture and just picking up the nuances that are tied in with that. I... Um, when I was looking at this, this passage, I wrote to one of our missionaries, Maggie Cruz, and just asked her what it was like. She'd worked for a number of decades in African countries, and then what she'd done fairly recently, the last couple of years, is moved to Cambodia, Asia. And I was asking her how she found that transition from working in Africa to Asia, and in particular Cambodia. Here, here are a couple of the comments she made. Uh, she said... I'm only just in, really, and feeling like a stranger in a strange 
land. And then she made a few comments about the big adjustments, like language. She said, in Africa, there are different language, languages, but often similar sounds and expressions. In Cambodia, the pitch and the tone are different and can sound even more foreign. She talked about the difference between the sense of humour. Uh, Africans are often gregarious, they love slapstick humour and a good belly laugh. But Cambodians are much more reserved with stricter rules about who can relate to who and at what level. You know? And she found all these things quite strange. Then on reflection, uh, Maggie made this comment. I've not lived in a country that has, in living mem memory, experienced genocide. And the impact of this is still acute. Peter talks about and speaks to exiles scattered. But I want you to know he's using Old Testament categories when he talks in that way. So it's describing that the people of God who live away from Jerusalem and the promised land, that was the Old Testament idea. So if you're thinking about this, you think Abraham, the Exodus, or when God's people were deported to Babylon. That's the Old Testament narrative that feeds into this sort of idea. But here's the thing. When it comes to the people Peter was writing to in this letter, the first recipients, they were almost certainly living in the towns that they were born in. Almost certainly they had not been displaced. They didn't have a culture shock in the sense of being a national in another location. So in what sense? Are they scattered? In what sense? Friends, this is a letter that's written to... Not Jews living away from Jerusalem, but Christians living away from heaven. Not Jews away from Jerusalem, Christians away from heaven, which is our ultimate home and destination. Can I say, if you are a believer uh, living here in Mount Barker in Adelaide in Australia, uh, then you ought to feel different. You ought to feel the tension that you're worldview brings to bear on your life. Uh, a worldview that's shaped by God's word and the hope of heaven. It will mean you march to the beat of a different drum. And at times there's an angularity attached to that. Uh, an out-of-stepness with where the culture that we live in is going. Exiles scattered. He then goes on and talks about the fact that he's writing to God's elect, people who are chosen by God. You pick it up in verse 1, God's elect. Then in verse 2, he says, Those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, can I say, this causes enormous uh, debate among both Believers and unbelievers alike. Yeah, you have Bible study groups getting a bit sort of people are nodding off in the corner, right? Just start, start talking about the fact that God chooses people to be in his family, predestines them to be in the kingdom. You'll get a discussion going fairly quickly, I think. Uh, it, it does. Because people say, how can it be that God chooses people to be in his family before the foundation of the world? I mean, how can that be fair? After all, don't people exercise real decision-making power when it comes to following Jesus? And if it is the case, what's the point in telling people about Jesus? After all, you know, God's going to choose them or not. It won't be affected by what I do, will it? 
You know, like all those are the sort of questions. But can I say this is a core biblical truth? God chooses us. And his foreknowledge that's spoken of here is not just a matter of knowing in advance what people are going to do, how it's all going to play out. The foreknowledge here is that God, in his deliberate generosity, brings people into his family. But here's the thing I want you to pick up at this point. This is not written to generate theological debate, even though I think it's most commonly the way in which believers today tend to approach these sort of verses. It's actually meant to fill us with thankfulness and awe. That's the response, and that's the tone of this passage. And it makes sense when you think about it. I read about um, Steve Jobs, an an incident that occurred to him when he was just seven years old. So Steve, you know, the creator of Apple, got a a high achiever. He says uh, that he was playing with a friend across the street, another seven-year-old, just during the day in the neighbourhood one time, And this girl, uh, Steve mentioned that he was adopted, and this girl said, so does that mean your real parents didn't want you? Just that typical seven-year-old directness, you know. And this is what he said. Lightning bolts went off in my head, and I remember running home and crying. And my parents said... No, Steve, you, you have to understand. They were serious. They looked straight at me, right in the eye, and they said this. We specifically picked you out. That's what they said to him. Job said, I've, I've all, always felt special. My parents made me feel special. He said they took that phrase and both of them said it time and time again, and they emphasised every word. He said, they said, we specifically picked you out. And they went over it again and said, we specifically picked you out. We specifically picked you out. I've always felt special. Friends, are you a believer? Can I say, God specifically chose you out to be in his family. Now, that that will make you feel extraordinarily privileged and special. Actually, it's not the reason it's written here. Uh, It's it's sort of an incidental reason. Verse 3, here's the reason it's written. So that you might live for the praise of the one who chose you. You are privileged, but it has a purpose. So what does it mean to be brought into the family of God? I want to just slow down for a bit and reflect with you on verses 3 and 4. Now, you might feel like we've been going pretty slowly already, but uh, I do just want to take a bit of time over verses 3 and 4 as we explore this together. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. New birth. 
I remember uh, seeing a cartoon uh, picture in a Christian book. It had these two twins, uh, cartoonish, crowded into a womb. And there was a speech bubble coming from one of the twins speaking to the other twin in the womb. And this is what this twin was saying. Don't be stupid. Who ever heard of life after birth? And I thought, how clever is that? You know, the context sort of shaping the idea. But, you know, all of us would say uh, birth really radically changed the trajectory of our life. You know, one moment we're uh, cushioned in uh, a warm, sheltered environment. Next, you're shoved out into a bright, cold, noisy world and someone shoving a tube down your throat and pulling gunk out and getting things going. You know, like you, you start breathing. Yeah, that's birth. It's a radical change of direction. But what's new birth? What's new birth? Friends, it's to begin a new life which is dominated by a relationship with God. That's, that's what it is. It's to be given a living hope. Uh, there are two perspectives on life that are being brought to bear here. Right? One is a life where you're born, you live, you make most of your 70 or 80 years. That's it. No future beyond it. And then there's new life, another life, it's full of hope and a future. But I want you to understand that the way in which the Bible uses the word hope, I think is very different to the way in which we do in our sort of common language. Like I could say to you, you know, I'm hoping that the Crows are going to win the grand final this year, okay? Now, that is a sort of a faint hope. Right? It's like, you know, I'm sure they'll give it the best shot and they may win this afternoon, who knows. But, are they gonna, you know, I'm thinking not going to win the premiership. That's, a, that's really a speculator. When the Bible uses the idea of hope here in verse 3, it's not talking about wishful thinking. It's talking about a definite thing. Currently unseen, but it will certainly unfold. That's the way the Bible talks about hope. And what's this hope based on? Why is it so secure? Well, look again at verse 3. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where the hope is founded. And the resurrection changes everything. Uh, Scott mentioned Peter the Apostle, the guy who writes this letter uh, earlier on. Remember, he's the same Peter who turned his back on Jesus when he was on the cross, the one who despaired after Jesus was killed, the one who locked himself away with the other followers. Um, but Peter's life was turned on its head. Why? Well, he, he, he came face to face with the living Lord Jesus raised from the dead. And this real-time, real-space historical event it changed absolutely everything for him. He then dedicated his life to speaking about the risen Jesus and the new life that anyone can have if they put their trust in him. And tradition has it that, that Peter was crucified in Rome, just like the master he followed, most likely upside down uh, at his own request. See, he risked his life and eventually gave it up in service of his Lord. How can you do that? 
Well, it's, it's only if you've been born again to a living hope. That's how you can do it. You hear people say it, don't you? You only live once, right? You only live once. And, of course, if that's true, you've got to try and squeeze as much as you possibly can out of life. You know, get as much as you possibly can extract uh, and you avoid anything that shortens either the length of your life or cuts across your enjoyment of the 70 or 80 years that you're allocated. But, friends, if you're born again, then everything changes, doesn't it? Your ambitions, your perspective on what's important, the whole box and dice, your perspective I want you to imagine that uh, as we come into COVID, you decide, yeah, we've had two or three years lockdown, it's been horrible, you know, I'd hope to go on some sort of world trip, I'm going to do it, okay, you decide you're going to do it, and no expense spared, you book the, uh, you know, six months off, business class all the way, you're going to visit multiple countries, have lots of experiences, and it would just be wonderful, okay, you, right? you set off. I want you to imagine that uh, you take um, lots of pictures while you're away uh, on your camera. You get back and you decide to get all your friends around to have a look at the thousand photos that you've taken on the screen in the course of a night, okay? That's what you've decided to do. This six months extraordinary experience. Now, I can guarantee that 990 of those photos one have been taken from the back seat of the taxi on the way to the airport. Right? But it'd just be not only boring, it, it might be boring anyway, but, you know, but a complete misfocus, you know, when the whole thing has been about this extraordinary trip. Can I say it's the same for those who have new birth? The 80 years, or whatever it turns out to be, that we live in this world, it is just a scratch on the face of eternity. It is just so small. But what we have is a living hope dominated by a future that overshadows our lives now and drives our ambitions and our hopes and our dreams. And notice what uh, this new birth means you get. Verse 4. An inheritance that can never spoil or fade. And this inheritance, it's kept in heaven for you. Uh, inheritances, I think, can be quite uh, uh, tricky and unpredictable sorts of things. Uh, when my wife Sue's great aunt died, Jean, over in Melbourne, we got this um, uh, extraordinary sort of planter pot thing, and it sits in our home right now. It is one of the ugliest porcelain creations known to mankind and probably unhelpfully does remind us of Suzanne Jean, but <laughs> it didn't mean not in a negative way. But uh, now, over the years, it's not been my favourite piece of thing around the house. I've let the boys use it for cricket stumps. Uh, you know, we've, it's had robust sort of treatment, but it's, it somehow survived all this mistreatment and still adorns a corner in our home. And let me say, I can show it to you. Uh, when you come over to our place, perhaps you'd like to borrow it even. Uh, surprisingly resilient. But, yeah, you know, the thing is, most stuff in this world is not that resilient. 
Most stuff in this world, our cars, our houses, our running shoes, our bodies, you know, stuff just wears out. I saw David just, just uh, during the break before, and he said, ah, oh, old age is playing its part. You know, I said, in what way? And he said, you know, it's my knees. I get down, but I struggle to get back up, you know. And, uh, but we all know that sort of experience, the ageing, you know, gradation that happens with our bodies. But friends, if you're born again, then you have an inheritance that cannot spoil, it cannot fade, it cannot perish, it can't be stolen because it is secure for you in heaven. And it will be revealed, verse 5, in the last time. That is when Jesus winds up the history of this world. It's interesting, actually, the, the heavenly inheritance. It's not described for us in great detail here, but if you went, say, to the book of Revelation that we might be coming back to later in the year, it's, it is pictured as the time when God dwells with his people. That is, those who are born again, who've received their inheritance. A time when every tear is wiped from our eyes. No more death, no more mourning. No more crying, no more pain. A time full of joy in the presence of God himself. And it's this certain hope that sustains us during the challenging times. In verse 6, Peter says, Now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And you might say, well, what's this little while being spoken of here? You know, uh, a bad week, a bad month, a bad year. I actually think that the little while here is, is talking about this, uh, this period until the last time referred to in verse 5. That is, it's the little while until Jesus returns and ushers in eternity. The little while is the 70 or 80 years living as a follower of Jesus in this world. That's what we're talking about. And what sort of trials are on view? you pick it up actually as you go through the letter and, and it will unfold as we work through but things like chapter 2 verse 12 accused of doing wrong or being spoken of as evil because you're a follower of Jesus uh, chapter 2 verse 19 when you suffer unjustly chapter 3 verse 9 when you're insulted or mocked because you're a follower of Jesus chapter 3 verse 13 when you suffer for doing what's right chapter 4 verse 4 when you're abused because you don't join in with other people in their wild living uh, chapter 4, verse 14, when you're insulted because you identify with Jesus. Sounds actually pretty familiar, I reckon, in terms of the context we find ourselves in today. In verse 7, it says, These trials, they've come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus is revealed. Now, hear me clearly at this point. It's not saying we should be, you know, masochists. You know, I just love being threatened, beaten and tortured for my faith in Jesus. It's not, that's not the message that we have here. But it is saying as those who've been born again, God says that he is refining us so that our trust in Jesus grows more and more, that we're being shaped for an eternity, the eternity we've been promised, the eternity that dominates 
our hearts in this present age. And when you know what God's doing, even through trials, well, verse 9, it fills us with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Some of you will know the name uh, Horatio Spafford. He was an American lawyer in the 1800s, invested in real estate uh, in Chicago, and that fortune was uh, decimated by the Great Fire in Chicago in 1871. Uh, Two years later, his wife and four daughters were able to go on a holiday to England, so they boarded a boat. And then on the 22nd of November, 1873, while the ship was crossing the Atlantic, it collided with another vessel and it sank. Uh, Spafford's wife uh, sent this telegram uh, to Spafford. Uh, It was short. Saved alone. It is all four daughters perished in this boating disaster. Shortly afterwards, uh, Spafford sailed to England, the same route on a boat to join his wife. And on that uh, trip, he he pinned uh, the words to a hymn, probably one that you know quite well. It is well with my soul. The first verse reads this way. And it's said that he wrote this song at the point on the trip where the boat had gone down. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, what have, what have been the, the most significant events or influences in your life? What have been the things that have been most destabilising or the things that have provided the, the secure anchors in your life? You know, what would you say? Yeah, would you tell me all about the taxi ride trip to the airport? Um, you know, the, the earthbound stuff, our career or family, your achievements the smart financial investments you've made that you think will keep things secure as you face an uncertain future. A lot of those things are are good things, but they are just way too flimsy to build a life on. They're ephemeral. Jesus is the one who said, what does a prophet a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or would you join with the Apostle Peter and would you say this? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given me new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never Perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for me. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that in your great mercy and kindness, 
Uh, you've rescued us from darkness. You've chosen us. You've brought us into your family. You've secured us for all eternity through the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to build wisely on that foundation, that those truths seep into our hearts and minds and strengthen us, strengthen us in times where we're being buffeted, uh, that the things of most importance are being uh, secured for us by you. Uh, Father, we pray that we'll delight in your kindness to us and that that'll lead us to have extraordinary mercy and grace to the people around us, even if they're not treating us well. Uh, Father, we pray that you will, in your generosity, keep shaping us more like your son. And we pray it in his name. Amen.